Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It is Wednesday, August 29th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I am Leon Nafok, filling in for Mike Pesca. Many people are now saying that this is the worst storm slash hurricane they have ever seen. Wow. Now experts are calling Harvey a once-in-500-year flood. Historic rainfall in Houston and all over Texas. Floods are unprecedented and more rain coming. Even experts have said they've never seen one like this. Those are all, of course, tweets from our President Trump, who has spent part of this week in Texas as the storm shifts towards Louisiana and rescue workers in Houston continue to pull people to safety. I just want to state the obvious here. Trump loves this hurricane. He is so excited about it, stoked, charged up. He is amped. It's just so big and so powerful, so awesome in, in both the traditional sense of that word, as in awe-inspiring, but also the more contemporary sense, as in totally sick. Look, I'm not saying Trump is happy that anyone is suffering or that he's getting any kind of pleasure out of watching people's homes destroyed. I don't think either of those things are true. I'm just saying the guy is having fun. He's having fun playing the role of president under such cinematic and cinematically dangerous and cinematically manly conditions. Uh, as the Washington Post's Jenna Johnson noted in a piece on Tuesday night, Trump gave a news conference about the storm during which he said, I've heard the words epic. I've heard historic. That's what it is. Maybe I'm being glib, but it reminds me of Trump's childlike grandstanding about North Korea. Remember when he said he'd go after Kim Jong-un with fire and fury, the likes of which this world has never seen before? He got that off of, like, a G.I. Joe cartoon. Or how about that notorious photo of him sitting in the cab of a fire truck, pressing down on the steering wheel with his hands and grinning like a nine-year-old? This Harvey thing is just another opportunity for Trump to feel like he's participating in important, high-stakes shit. The problem, of course, is that he actually is. It's like if a child dressed up as a police officer for Halloween and then, due to a wonky mix-up, was put in charge of a raid on a major drug dealer's house. The truth is, I don't know how much depends on Trump in this grave and, yes, historic situation, whether the things he says and does and the decisions he makes are actually consequential. I hope they're not. But I guess as long as it doesn't kill anyone, the guy might as well enjoy playing dress-up. Today in the show, I spiel about Taylor Swift's good but also bad new single, but first, I speak to historian Diane Conker about a little thing called vacation, and, more specifically, what it meant to pursue leisure and rest in the workers' paradise known as the Soviet Union. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And now, in the waning days of summer, we are going to talk about vacation, specifically how people in the Soviet Union approached vacation and what the Soviet government wanted and expected them to get out of it. It turns out that they took it extremely seriously. Going on vacation in the Soviet Union was about so much more than just getting away from your boring, difficult job. Uh, it was about improving your mind, exercising and strengthening your body, becoming a better Soviet citizen so that you could come back and be a better worker. Now, I'm oversimplifying a bit, as you will hear from our guest, Diane Conker, a historian at the University of Illinois who wrote a tremendous book about this topic called Club Red, Vacation Travel and the Soviet Dream. The book came out in 2013, and I remember getting a copy of it in the mail from the publisher and thinking, my God, academics are amazing. They have this ability to sort of choose a subject so seemingly narrow and esoteric and then spin out this broad and profound theory about it. Diane, thank you so much for joining me on The Gist. It's my pleasure, Leon. I want to start by asking you, sort of tell the story of how you came to the realization that Soviet tourism, Soviet vacation, leisure was a topic worthy of such close examination. I mean, it seems so specific, right? It's such a narrow lens in a way, but you seem to have realized that this very narrow window would let you see and understand all of Soviet history pretty much and sort of examine some of the very fundamental tensions at the heart of being a person living in that system. I mean, having written a couple of books that were on specific periods in Soviet history, I was really interested in, in doing a project that would allow me to see change over time from the beginning of the Soviet era to the end. And I was interested also in everyday people's experiences rather than high politics and, and violence and war. So I was looking at various topics on everyday life, and I had come across in my previous research the creation of the Society for Proletarian Tourism in 1927, and I thought that was quite interesting and odd. Uh, and so I began the research with tourism, and then I discovered there was a huge amount of published and, and archival material available. And how did you realize, though, that like the way in which Russians or people in the Soviet Union rested was the sort of this nexus for how they related to the state. Well, not everything in the Soviet Union was connected to, to state policy in one way or another. And so by following the, the evolution of the institutions of tourism and people's uh, attachment of meanings to tourism, uh, you inevitably find out how the state uh, economic system and political system interacts with people's desires. And, and so I could see over time a really marked shift away from rigid state control uh, and di dictating what they thought that people should want to empowering the people themselves to make their vacation decisions. And increasingly, even in the 1930s, ironically, at the same time as, as the purges are, are swinging into gear, an increased uh, focus on, on leisure travel as, as pleasurable travel, as an entitlement of to the good life of, of the Soviet people. And this trend continued to the very end. It was constrained less by politics than by economic shortages. The, the regime could never provide as much leisure, travel, space as people wanted. I feel like there are these two poles that you explore in the book with pleasure on, on one end and utility uh, on the other. And I feel like vacation... Uh, was promoted by the state and experienced by, by by people themselves as sort of like a practical activity, as sort of a, a way to 
replenish one's strength and 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 uh, rest up for for the work that you have to do once you get home. Tell me how that strikes you as a as a summary, and and what what is it leaving out? Well, I think it leaves out that the, the, these are really two parts. I mean, the, the purposeful part of a vacation was was very definitely that that the Soviet worker. Uh, would be a better worker if he or she had an annual rest to sort of recoup their strength. And this is not unique to the the Soviet Union. The way American trade unions convinced capitalist employers to give annual vacations was by saying they'll be better workers for you. They'll be more productive when they come back to work. So it's not so much an entitlement uh, of the person, but as a contribution to the economy. I'd like to talk to you briefly about the, the trips that my parents took me on. So for some context, my mom and dad were born in Moscow uh, during the 1950s. Um, and when, when we moved to the U.S., they would take me on these uh, on these trips mostly into uh, nature. We would go hiking. You said canoeing. Uh, we went to the Minnesota Boundary Waters. And uh, it often happened that we that we went into these large groups of, of, of their friends, other other. Um, Soviet emigres who, who who had settled in the U.S. As I understood, you know, this this tradition as I got a little older was they wanted to like get away from the government. Really, they wanted to like be out in a, in in part of the world where the government couldn't find them, where they where they didn't have to think about the government. How much of what I just said was sort of the the, the animating motive for Russians to travel to these remote and untouched parts of the country? I th- this this whole concept of escape is is kind of controversial, and and I I'm I think indivi- different individuals had different levels of of need to escape, but again, paradoxically, th- that mode of travel was was dictated by the Society for Proletarian Tourism starting in 1927. You form groups of like-minded people, you plan your itinerary, you go out into nature. Each person has a task, uh, and these each everybody learns in th- this process to to work together. Music was very much part of it. Culture, it's, in in Soviet times, doing good works along the way was also useful. You'd discover, you were hopefully discover new types of ore for your scientific laboratory, or or new plant life, or build a radio transmitter for peasants. But the practice of going out into nature in groups, not pre-assigned and 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 not monitored, um, was was very much part of of the uh, of the the manuals. Uh, Telling people how to be tourists in the 1920s and 30s. I should have said earlier when I was describing those those hiking trips. You know, my my dad was sort of the um, skipper on those. Like he was the one who took me through the portage and with a canoe on on, on his back, and and he was sort of the guy in charge. There was another kind of vacation I would, I took as a kid that my mom was really the sort of person uh, leading the way. She really loved going to cities. Still does. She loved going to museums visiting churches, learning history. And I remember, uh, especially as I got a little older, feeling like resentful of how busy she wanted us to be on vacation and how hard she wanted us to work uh, to sort of enrich our minds, really. And, and, and I felt guilty, you know, every minute that we weren't doing one of those things, that we were somehow wasting our vacation, wasting our time. Is there a way to trace that impulse back to the sort of tendencies that you uh, discovered while, while researching your book? This kind of crash tourism i th- i think is is a product of of how scarce the opportunity was that it was very difficult to, to get on a package tour even to to cities of russia let alone uh cities abroad starting in the mid 1950s and so you didn't want to ma- waste a minute of it because you didn't know if you'd ever get the opportunity to see budapest and and prague and and, and berlin again 
I suspect a lot of the people listening to the, to this right now are are kind of thinking back to to ways in which they've gone on vacation um, and are comparing, you know, the their their mindset to to the mindset you're describing. What's the difference between how Americans go on vacation and 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 how uh, Soviet people did? Right. I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean, this is a modern phenomenon, uh, and and also in my research, discovering how other countries did tourism and how tourism developed from the grand tour only for the aristocrats. Uh, to being more middle class and accessible uh, to the working classes and, and the preferences they had. That's part of a, a global story in a way. I think a couple of peculiarities of the Soviet experience. One was that the idea of, of the vacation benefiting the individual did not extend to the family. And and, and they never imagined that people would, would get pleasure out of taking a vacation with their family. They never could figure out how to organize uh, families to get their vacation at the same time. So they never built facilities for families to vacation together. Instead, the idea was children would go off to summer camps. Uh, husband and wife would get their vacations whenever it was useful for their workplace and often at different times. And they would take whatever vacation uh, voucher was available. There wasn't a lot of choice. And that developed into a kind of preference for separate vacations. And there was a lot of discussion among various officials that people prefer to get away from their family, not just escaping from the state, but escaping from family life. And the second difference is, is just lack of money to provide the facilities. Uh, there were never enough space for the people that wanted to take vacations. This occurs to me just now. Did did vacation kind of create a kind of conspicuous class difference between people? I mean, people who could afford it and people who couldn't? It's a great question. I mean, everybody was granted a vacation, so it wasn't a matter of what you could afford. Uh, and in fact, blue-collar workers, factory workers were given priority. The rules throughout the, the Soviet period were that 70 to 80 percent of all these vacation passes should be given to blue-collar workers. But somehow, factory workers got the passes for the winter months and the officials and, and professors got passes for the summer months. And so the people with kind of cultural clout and political clout manipulated the system to create uh, a sense of of prestige and, and and privilege. I'm remembering times when I would discuss with my mom like plans for trips that I would want that I wanted to take. This is like when I was a little older. You know, for instance, I would I, I would say, ah, you know, I want to go on a road trip uh, with my friends. My mom would really bristle at these ideas, specifically those like. Some had something about the, the road trip made, it didn't make sense to her. It was like she used the word, I'm sure you know this word, uh, Porschlist, uh, sort of a tackiness. In the, the campaign for proletarian tourism, the, the, the enemy was, was bourgeois tourism, which was purposeless. It was just seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. Uh, and tourism should always be culturally uplifting. Uh, so the kind of typical American road trip, aimlessly driving around the country looking for adventure, was denounced uh, as as vagrancy uh, in the Soviet Union. So it was okay to, to go around the country if you were going to build radio transmitters for people uh, and give out pencils in, in the Caucasus, uh, but, you, but you had to have a purpose. Diane Conker, uh, author of Club Red, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks very much.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Taylor Swift, the 27-year-old pop star, has a new single out called Look What You Made Me Do. And it is an object lesson on the sin of excessive self-referentiality and thinking too much about how other people see you. First things first, contrary to what you've read on Twitter, the song is pretty good. It follows in the tradition of Taylor Swift's previous lead singles, Shake It Off from 1989 and We Are Never Getting Back Together from Red. All three of these songs sound kind of awkward at first like they were written by someone who's never heard a song before. Remember this? Hey, hey, hey. Just think, while you've been getting down and out about the liars and the dirty, dirty cheats of the world, you could have been getting down to this sick beat. My ex-man brought his new girlfriend. She's like, oh my God. But I'm just gonna shake into the fella over there with the hella good hair. Won't you come on over, baby? We can shake, shake, shake. Or how about this from Never Getting Back Together? broke up the first time saying this is it i've had enough because like we hadn't seen each other in a month when you said you needed space what then you come around again and say baby i miss you and i swear i'm gonna change trust me remember how that lasted for a day i say i hate you we break up you call me i love you i would say every single part of look what you made me do has that off-putting whiff of awkwardness especially the chorus but as she does she makes it work for better or for worse i could hum the whole thing after hearing the song twice and musically i like it more every time i listen to it especially the awkward chorus the song is a stone-cold hit, and we'll all remember the melody for years to come. All right, so having defended the song as music, I'm now going to criticize it as art. For some context, Look What You Made Me Do is going to be in an album coming out in November called Reputation. The cover shows Taylor Swift in black and white, drowning in headlines. 
It'll be the first album Taylor has put out since public opinion, as measured by tweets and takes, has decidedly turned against her. I guess there was already some ill will brewing when 1989, her last album, came out. But that was the moment it overwhelmed her insane popularity. Suddenly, you had Gawker publishing a piece titled Taylor Swift is Not Your Friend, in which writer Dana Evans portrayed Taylor Swift as a conniving, self-centered, and I quote, ruthless, publicly capitalist pop star. Criticizing Swift's tacky habit of bringing various famous people on stage with her at every tour stop, Evans went on to say, Swift is not here to help women. She's here to make bank. Seeing her on stage cavorting with World Cup winners and supermodels was not a win for feminism, but a win for Taylor Swift. Her plan to be as famous and as rich as she can possibly be is working, and by using other women as tools for her self-promotion, she's distilling feminism for her own benefit. Later, in the wake of controversy involving Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, which I won't rehash here, BuzzFeed published a story by Ellie Woodward about how Taylor Swift has built her career on playing the victim. Quote, The feud exposed the truth that white fragility is the most imperative component of Swift's success. Performing white female melodrama has enabled Swift to establish her posture as victim and navigate any conflict with ease devoid of culpability. Over at the ringer, meanwhile, there was a roundtable headlined, When did you first realize Taylor Swift was lying to you? So you get the idea. The tide turned. Decisively. The narrative around Taylor Swift curdled. And while no one could really argue that 1989 didn't have a bunch of incredible songs on it, because it did, critics were mainly concerned with her persona, the image she had created around herself, the PR strategy she adopted to promote the music. So what did Taylor Swift do about the sudden change in the climate? She wrote a song about it, and possibly an entire album. Now, it doesn't take a decoder ring to know that Look What You Made Me Do is full of references to the controversies she's been involved in, and the attacks she's been subjected to from journalists and other celebrities. It also doesn't take a crisis management expert to realize that this song will only earn her more of the same as it already has. As someone who likes most of Taylor Swift's songs, loves most of Taylor Swift's songs even, I really, really wish she had played this differently. More specifically, I wish that she had written something about her actual life instead of using her music to comment on the big, bad media narrative that all of us have imposed on her. This brings me to my main objective here, which is to make a plea to all the artists out there listening to The Gist. Stop making art about your media narratives. It's not just bad PR. It's bad art. I'm not making a high-minded argument here about tabloid gossip. I'm fine with tabloid gossip. Nor am I suggesting that artists should have thicker skins. I'm definitely not saying that they need to look beyond themselves and not be so navel-gazy. I love navel-gazy. The rendering of one's experiences and inner life is like job number one for an artist, and they shouldn't be embarrassed about doing it. Here's the thing, though. Commenting on the narrative other people have created around you is the opposite of navel-gazing. It reflects a choice to care more about other people's thoughts and feelings than your own. Why would you make art about that? Instead of writing or painting or whatever you're doing from your own singular perspective, capturing what you see as you move through the world, what you think and feel, what you experience, you're writing a song or a book or a movie about how everyone else sees you? This is a creative dead end, and for a very specific reason. Every artist and celebrity who feels persecuted experiences it in roughly the same way. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not a celebrity or artist, but I suspect I'm right. There's nothing unique about Taylor's anxiety regarding her reputation, to borrow the name of her forthcoming album. There's nothing her own about it, especially when rendered in broad strokes and abstractions like the kind that fill up Look What You Made Me Do. It reminds me of something my dad once told me when I was a teenager about why I shouldn't do drugs. They make everyone the same, he said. Whether you're smoking pot or snorting cocaine, these things just turn you into a person who's high on pot or high on cocaine. It erases your eccentricities, your individuality. It makes you generic. Maybe generic is just all that remains of Taylor Swift at this point. Keith Harris, the music editor at City Pages, put it this way in an excellent piece that went up earlier this week. There are two inevitable points along every pop star's career arc. First, she reaches a stage where she can only sing about herself. 
Then, soon, the only part of herself she can sing about is her fame. Commercially, narratively, artistically, Swift was destined to arrive at both points simultaneously after 1989. Harris goes on to write that Taylor is now left only to, quote, catalog and neutralize every possible perspective that you might have on quote-unquote Taylor Swift. While you're tweeting checkers, Swift is checkmating you in hot take chess. Man, I don't want hot takes from Taylor Swift. I want songs. And I take Keith's point. Maybe Taylor Swift really does have nothing else going on besides reading what people are tweeting about her. But I doubt it. She's a human being. Like everybody, she contains multitudes. She's not generic. She's not living a generic life because there's no such thing as a generic life. For all the people who hate her, Swift is a complete and complicated human being, just like the rest of us. And she knows, or at least knew, how to capture that in her music. Remember her song 15 from Fearless, her breakout album? Back then I swore I was gonna marry him someday But I realized some bigger dreams of mine And Abigail gave everything she had to a boy Who changed his mind Or even All Too Well from Red, which is supposedly about Taylor's relationship with fellow celebrity Jake Gyllenhaal. Time won't fly, it's like I'm paralyzed by it. I'd like to be my old self again, but I'm still trying to find it. After bad shirt days and nights when you made me your own. Now you mail back my things and I walk home alone. But you keep my old scarf from that even though these lyrics engage with tabloid gossip, they're so specific. They conjure a narrative that Taylor Swift created, not a narrative that literally everyone else created for her. I'll say one last thing about this. By writing a song like Look What You Made Me Do, which basically demands that listeners collapse any distance they might assume exists between Taylor Swift the celebrity and the work that she produces, she's making an implicit argument for judging the merits of art by first judging the moral decisions and self-presentation of the artist who made it. She's inviting people to evaluate the song by evaluating her. Thanks to the ripped from the headlines lyrics, how you feel about Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift's persona is how you're going to feel about the song. Whether or not it's right to hold the sins of artists against their art is an old argument. I'm not going to relitigate it here because, for better or for worse, I know where I come down on it. Take the rapper Kodak Black, just as an example. Here's a guy who's accused of heinous, violent crimes. But also, a guy who's really good at rapping. I understand the allegations against him can make the experience of listening to his music complicated for people. And it makes a lot of people not want to support him financially by downloading his songs and buying tickets to his shows. But to me, what Kodak Black did doesn't make his incredible music any worse. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. By the same token, and this is much more obvious, the media narrative around Taylor Swift does not make her music any better. Her obsession with it, and her insistence on incorporating it into her songs, is a way bigger risk to her survival as an artist than any number of takedowns and tweets. That is it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Thank you to Gist host Mike Pesca. He's back next Tuesday. Umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.